Hello, I'm Liz Jones. If you read my diary in the Mail on Sunday's You magazine, then you'll know me and my life pretty well. But if you've always wanted to know more, this is the place for you. Welcome to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast. I'll be taking you behind the scenes of this week's column before digging back into the archives to find some of the most shocking and hilarious stories from the last 20 years. I'll be doing all this with the help of my assistant, friend and confidant, Nick. Hello. We have reports from Paris that Diana, Princess of Wales, has been killed in a car accident. And this is the last stage of this journey from London. So we've both been watching Princess on Sky, which has been made to sort of commemorate Diana's death on August 31st. So it'll be 25 years next week. Yeah, it's 25 years, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. So I, I quite like the documentary because there wasn't the usual talking heads popping up and saying what they thought about it. It was purely, in her words, Charles's words... It had a, an extract from the Martin Bashir interview on Panorama. But I remember I watched that in a pub with my friend Jeremy and we were both on a newspaper and we were just like typical Fleet Street journalists. We're just like, oh, my God, this is a great story. What's the headline tomorrow? Yeah. And I remember... Well, when you found out, when you heard that she died? No, that was when we were watching Martin Bashir. Oh, I say, yeah. No, when she died, it was a Sunday and I woke up and my sister Sue actually phoned me and said, did you know Diana's died? And I'm like, no. And she's like, well, you're a bloody journalist. And so the first thing I did was I got in my car and I went to work. Yeah. Because it was the biggest story and you wanted to be part of the biggest story of of the century. So I just got in my car without asking and I got to work. And we were all just sitting there in Wapping thinking, she's dead how are we going to sell newspapers for the next 25 years? Because we literally did stories on Diana pretty much every day. Yeah, yeah. And we did supplements on Diana and we did her dresses and I've probably written about every single outfit she's ever worn, ever. But it's weird because we started to put together a, a special about her clothes and I remember going to Kensington and walking with people who were putting flowers down, but I was sort of too embarrassed to put flowers down. But I did meet her once, and we had a Christmas party in Wapping, and she turned up, and every man in the room was just transfixed. She yeah. had this sort of... Hypnotic quality. She just sort of mm. glowed. But when you spoke to her, she didn't look over your shoulder. So, like, for example, when I met Victoria Beckham at the British Fashion Awards, she just looked over my shoulder to see someone more interesting. Yeah. She never looked me in the eye, Victoria Beckham. She just looked over my shoulder. But Diana looked you in the eye. And, and listened. You felt like you were the most important yeah. person in the room. And she was so tall and just... I just loved her. And I remember when the funeral was on telly and my dad was terminally ill and we knew he was going to die. I was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and particularly I was so worried about the horses because I thought, all oh, the poor horses and they're going to be scared and they're going to be hot and people are shouting and the poor horses. 
I was literally sobbing, and I know I was sobbing not just for Diana and the two boys, but because I knew I was just about to lose my dad. Yeah. Oh, and I gosh. thought, this is a rehearsal. This is what it feels like when when, you, when your parent dies. Owls. And I remember when it finished, and after they'd thrown all the flowers on the hearse as she was driving to Althrop, I got in my Beetle, my 35-year-old Beetle, and drove to my dad's house, and he was just about to die, along the motorway to Essex, and there wasn't another single car. Not one other car on the motorway. So it's unbelievable, isn't it? I remember when the M eleven, the M eleven. Oh, I love the M eleven. It's a bane of bane of my life. I think everybody knows where they were and what they were doing when Princess Diana died, or, or when Elvis died. Those are the two things I remember. Yeah, I was never fan. really into Elvis. And we were going to a horse show that day on the Sunday. My friend was phoning to wake me well, up. Diana or Elvis. Oh, Diana, and um, she was phoning to wake me up. And she phoned me up, and I thought, oh, she, you know, God, you're phoning early. We're not. We don't need to leave for hours. You should turn the news on. Turn the news on. Princess Diana's bit had a car crash, and at this time we didn't know whether she died or not. And I remember sitting for hours in front of the TV, and this: has she died? Is she alive? Is she not alive? And no one knew. And it was just awful and and it was weird because I, I mean i like diana and watched everything you know same as everybody but i was surprised at how devastated i was when they said she died and when i watched the funeral and i was crying i was crying for those boys walking behind i thought it was just unbelievable these two brave boys and i didn't know i cared that much i don't i didn't i mean i'm sure you know your dad sort of not having very long that was all part of your emotion yeah. with Diana, and and it was it was life changing, really. Strangely enough, and and but in this documentary, awful. Princess, I thought the most poignant moment was when Charles and I just got married. Yeah, I was on Company magazine then, and I was living. Where was I living? I was living in the Barbican with my flatmates, who are now famous actors. And we all went to the fireworks the night before, and it was horrendous because you're watching the fireworks the night before Di's wedding, and you just got covered in black ash. So I'm like, I'm covered in black ash. Yeah. And then we couldn't get out of Hyde Park because there were so many people. So come the day of the wedding, I was exhausted, yeah. so we just watched it on telly. But the most telling moment in the Princess documentary was that Charles and Di, after the wedding, arrive at Buckingham Palace in the carriage and get out. And they both look so miserable. Yeah, I thought Miserable. That. I thought that. In fact, actually, I mean, the one thing that sort of struck to me was how she changed as a 19-year-old and she was saying things that her uh, role was to stand by her husband, support her husband, be a good wife, be a good mother, and that shyness until she just turned into this much more confident woman who had a real mission to help people and, and work on, on these charities. And that that was so evident, the way they put the, the footage together. I, yeah. I, I was really quite taken with that. I hadn't sort of... We did know she'd gone through a metamorphosis, obviously. She was only 19, and, and you saw she changed into a different woman. But I thought it was really interesting yeah. watching it go, go through that way. But again, with footage like that, it's still dependent, isn't it, on what the filmmaker chooses. You're still, even though you're using real footage, you're still 
Oh, you're still editing you're it. You're still editing yeah. it. You're still creating a certain feeling by what you choose and a certain direction with it. So even that's not, not biased. It can't be. It's just not possible. So, Nick, you and I have been reading Deborah James, Dame Deborah James's book, How to Live When You Should Be Dead. We have. It came out on the 18th of August. Three pounds from every book goes to her bowel cancer charity. That's quite a huge percentage. It's a huge percentage. And she's already raised over six and a half million um, with her charity stuff. So... Even though she's, she she died in June, didn't she? And this book was published um, on the 18th. She's still raising money and that's what she wanted to do. So 100% respect for Deborah. I, I mean, I've, I'm actually going to go and start reading her blog because I didn't really know anything about her until it came up on Twitter that she died and I didn't really know anything about her. And I am full of admiration for the way she turned a terminal diagnosis or what she preferred to call incurable, she didn't like the word terminal, um, diagnosis into something where she was publicising bowel cancer. She was talking about bowel function. She was talking about pose. She was talking about what to look for in a way that people really get embarrassed about. So I really respect her. And, And I thought this book... Well, she did a podcast as she well. She did, yeah, the Big C. And 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 I thought the good thing about this book is she's so down to earth, and it is. I don't know what you thought, but I found it was very simple. You know, she, she's. I've got every admiration for it. And, and this book could apply to anybody. We've all got different things that affect us: divorce, illness, um, cheating partners, mental health. And I thought the. The, the advice in this book about getting on with it and, and how to cope with it w- would really apply to anybody. Yeah. One of her fellow podcasters was interviewed in the papers this week um, and she just got a flat through a friend because she was living above a chip shop before. Because everyone who thinks people do podcasts earn, earn loads of money, but she's living above, above a chip well, shop. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be nice? <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? And she's now got a garden. Her garden is really saving her. Yeah. And she, I don't think we do this, and I definitely don't do this. She gets up every day and is grateful to have that day and sit next to the lavender and smell her flowers and have her cup of coffee and appreciate it. But we all just think of the future, don't we? I'll do this when I've got that, and I'll do this when I'll be happy when I've got that. And I think Deborah, she talks about being a very nervous, anxious person. Yeah. And her anxiety went away. It's like when the worst thing happens to you, you think, well... You've got nothing left. Nothing else is going to happen, you know. Um, And I don't think we do really appreciate each day, really. No, and I think if you have... I get up in the morning and I can't wait to be safe in my bed at night because no. that's the only place I feel safe. No, and, and I mean, and that's terrible, isn't it, on so many levels. And and what a legacy for her children that she did all this amazing stuff, raised millions of pounds, raised awareness, talked about something that was fairly embarrassing and taboo for a lot of people. When she had that diagnosis, she didn't just give up. She didn't say, I can't now do. And she, she actually talks about she was mourning the loss of her career because it was it was part of a means which she defined what her worth was. 
but she created a new worth and, and, and obviously something much more significant. What she's done is really important. Yeah. So it, it's 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 a nice book to read, isn't it? It's really interesting, really no, I would I would tell everyone just to buy it, really, yeah. and give it to your kids. Yeah, because it doesn't matter what your problem is. It's kind of being just sensible about it, you know, get on with it, really. And... She's awesome, absolutely awesome. My column this week is really about me trying to pick myself up again. Yeah. And I know when I was at my worst, being made bankrupt for a variety of reasons, you don't get any sympathy, you don't get any help. People think it's your fault. And there were some very, very, very low times during that net. It was horrendous, absolutely horrendous. I mean, I didn't eat for weeks. No, it no was one awful. helped me. It was awful. But I'm trying again, you see. So this column is about me trying again. And to be fair, Liz, you do try. I mean, even when you was on your knees, you tried really hard. You wrote a screenplay. You wrote a book. You know, you 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 really did try. You didn't just sort of say, oh, this is awful, I'm going to go into a depression. You worked really hard to change and get out of it, really hard. The problem is, once something like that happens to you, it's very, very, very hard to get back on your feet again, you know. And it's like, I talked about my brother not being a success. Sometimes you're just not a success and you're poor and you die. Yeah. You know, and no one cares about you, no one's heard of you. Do do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I sort of refused to give in. I did everything that everyone told me to do. But I think I needed a bit more Deborah James, really, because I was so scared of everyone, I didn't stick up for myself. I didn't say, well, no, actually, that person let me down, my agent let me down, my accountant let me down, my manager let me down, um, my employers let me down. Um, I was hoodwinked by my family. These people let me down. I was so scared. I couldn't sleep. I just capitulated and said, yeah, look, I'm really yeah. sorry. I've been stupid. I should have been, you know, if I was in Africa, I still should have been able to sign my tax return and I should have looked into it more. But everything happens so quickly and you trust people who you employ to look after you. And I got really annoyed the other day because someone wanted me to do a story about women's pensions and stuff. And they said, yes, but Liz, it needs, you need to have a lot of Mia Culpa in the piece. And I'm not, no, there isn't any Mia Culpa. I employed professionals, £3,000 a month I paid my accountant to help me to look after everything. Yeah. And also, I don't think, I think, unless you've been through it, you have no concept of what an intimidating process it is. All of a sudden, oh. you have these official letters you have these demands you have to account for everything but you have, you have to, to but even though you're going bankrupt you have to pay for everything yeah okay you've got to pay the solicitor who's representing you against hmrc you've got to pay a three thousand pounds this afternoon or we're not going to represent yeah. you you yeah. need to pay the insolvency practitioner so many thousand yeah. pounds i've probably paid them back double what i owed yeah. because there's penalties There's interest, there's fines, there's lump sums, there's solicitors. It cost me an absolute fortune. And all I've done since 1980 is work. 
I've had one day off sick, which you remind me of quite regularly. I have had one day off sick when I didn't file a piece yeah, yeah. since 1980. Yeah. And I still, if you look at my account, I've got £1.63. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is a very difficult interview. Like you process. asked me, Nick. So every week, listeners, I don't want this to get too negative, but we'll just say this. Every week I say to Nick, can you find that archive when I went to Limewood and got called a dickhead or when I got married or when I went to Somalia or when I went to Ethiopia or when it's when I went to South America or when I went and interviewed Philip Green. Can you find that archive, Nick? So she finds the archive, she sends it to me. Do you know the reason I can't find my own archives? Yeah, I do. Well, I'm going to tell the listeners. Yeah, come. Because I cannot bear to look through my yeah. past work and see how many millions of words I've looked at. How I can't bear to see how many millions of words I've written and the stress. I'm writing a column. They're saying, last minute to board, you've got a board. I'm still writing, you've got a board. You've got... Go to Venice with two hours' notice. I don't know where Venice is. Well, what, what terminal? What terminal? What terminal? How do I get to the hotel? It's water. Um, I'm in a market in Ethiopia and there's 200 men want to fight me. I'm in Afghanistan. I'm in an earthquake in Pakistan. I can't bear to find my own archives because it reminds me of every story I've done since 1980 and I've got nothing. Yeah. Tell us about the column. The rock star has asked if I will accompany him to a funeral. Not a family member or close friend, but a roadie he worked with years ago. It will mean a lot to the dead man's family. Don't write about it, he said. And therein, here was the rub. I won't, I said. God. In the past, I always borrowed garments for big occasions a couture coat dress by Susanna London for my sister-in-law's funeral, a Susanna pink cocktail dress, a matching coat for my niece's wedding. That was lovely. Wasn't it lovely? Oh, it was I had a hat as well. No, it was beautiful. Beautiful. My wardrobe HQ's Victoria Beckham slip dress for a boyfriend's birthday. I was barred from my sister Claire's funeral, so I had no need of an outfit. I'd written about her alcoholism in this newspaper. The fact that I had sent her to a Swiss rehab clinic and acted as guarantor on two of her rented houses counted for nothing. I rummaged through my wardrobe. Jill sans de duster coat bought in a panic from Barney's for an Oscars after party as I hated my arms. Dries van Noten gown that shows my breast surgery scars. Wear a vest, my mum would say. I wore my own Victoria Beckham for that funeral, my mum's funeral. Aghast, a relative rocked up in jeans and a nose ring. Why do people think an event is all about them? I don't like, I'll be honest with you, I'm old-fashioned. I think you should dress nicely for a funeral. Yeah, don't wear a nose ring and don't wear jeans. No, I don't like it. What's still in my wardrobe? Kukai sequin trousers. A Ralph Lauren safari jacket. Gracie has chewed the belt. The only suitable outfit is a black Prada pencil skirt and matching knitting jacket. I bought it with my editor's discount of 40%. Oh, 
I bought it in 1999 in Milan. My black Prada bag is missing a strap as my newest colleague, Teddy, has started to chew absentmindedly. Everything now has tiny teeth marks. My The Rose sunglasses case, bought post-facelift, one of my chest nights no longer has a head. I have one pair of black heels left, having eBayed the rest. I can't walk in them, so we'll have to cling to passing strangers. I must remember not to stand too close to the edge of the grave. I've only borrowed shoes once, so that they can still be sold after you've worn them. You have to put parcel tape on the sole to prevent scuffs. It could become all a bit sticky in heat. I borrowed Louboutins for an award ceremony, and I became rooted at the lectern and had to be escorted off by Stephen Mangan. Oh dear. Do you know who he is? No, no idea. It's very famous. Is it because I'm a fetus? <laughs> I had my meeting with the book publisher. She didn't mention the novel I'd already given her, which wasn't a good sign. I pitched a new idea, which she seemed to love. It is very ITV, 9pm on a Sunday. And so I have to start all over again. The blank page looms. Our meeting took place in London's Charlotte Street Hotel, which is packed on a Wednesday afternoon. I wondered how all these people managed to be so carefree and happy. Why aren't they at work? What are they doing that I'm not? I remember I went to a screening at the Charlotte Street Hotel of Atonement with my husband, who then wrote a comment piece of the Evening Standard saying, this is why our marriage didn't work. English women are just frosty. Like, Ouch! Like Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley never really came on to James McAvoy. It's a bit though, isn't it? No, you wrote a column about I'm it. I'm not frosty. But do you know how old I am? I even went to the screening before it was released of Ghost. <gasps> oh, my God, that's such a good film. And I got back to the office and I'm like, Patrick Swayze! Oh, oh he was, you know, he was just born to wear them black trousers. In Ghost? He had black trousers on. Did he? I'm sure he did. But do you know the thing I love most about Ghost? Well, I could think of a few things. Apart really. from Patrick Swayze. <laughs> the apartment. Oh, yeah. Wasn't the apartment beautiful? I thought, oh, I want to live in that apartment. And actually, Demi Moore, my God, wasn't she... Who could look beautiful with that haircut and just look so sobbing, amazing? Sobbing. Yeah. Sobbing. The, the, the glistening tear in the corner of her eye with her perfect face. Oh, my God. I went to see another house on Saturday. It's beautiful. With original wide floorboards, old doors with brass knobs, working fireplaces with marble surrounds. It's stunning, but it's too far from the horses for me, able, for me to be able to look after them. The woman who showed me round, having to sell up as she is going blind, appeared far happier than I am. Why are you panting, she asked me as we reached the bedroom with the dual aspect overlooking an abbey. Do you want to sit down? So this woman who's selling up because she's going blind feels sorry for me. I have to say, when when you are panting, like your anxiety breathing... It is actually quite awful, like to listen to. Everyone it. It's quite notices it. No, it is really obvious. It's Everyone really obvious. notices it. 
It is. It's really obvious. Do you, do you want to sit down? She said, I always pant. I said, I'm always anxious. You're anxious looking around a beautiful house? Yes, always. I had to reverse my car just now and I nearly had a heart attack. You've seen my reversing. I wouldn't call it reversing. I've got to be honest. Liz, Liz if, if she's reversing... I just take a vague stab at a space, don't I? No, 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 no. You take a vague stab at whatever it is you're going to hit. Liz just reverses into things. There could be like two miles between two posts and she will reverse into the post. Anyway, this house I went to see on the Saturday was over the North Pennines and I was just terrified that I was going to career over the edge or run over a sheep. Every single car passed me like I was Mrs Magoo. Anyway, the woman who's going blind said, do you have any friends up here? No, I said, no one. Are you starting again? Yes, at least I'm hoping to. Oh, that's 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 a very hanging in the air, isn't it? No, but I'm trying. At least, at least I'm hoping to. That's like that's but a I'm payoff. To that's start a payoff. Again. It's a payoff. It's a payoff. It's she a... knows all the Fleet Street <laughs> journal lingo. I do. I do. I don't think we've got time for the archive. <laughs> You can read this week's diary in full on Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Now, one of my moans this week, one of my many, many moans, was I was on a train on the LNER showing the ticket man my ticket and he didn't ask to see my senior rail card. That's bad. That's so really this bad. <laughs> from the archive, is from February 2012, when I was a lot younger. And the Daily Mail had this good idea of turning me into an old person. Is this good idea in inverted commas? Yes. Is it good idea? Do you remember when they turned me into the Queen and I had to wave, my arm got very tired? I think, wasn't you, let's just put this into perspective, wasn't you a Queen on like a skateboard or something in front no, of the No, I was a Palace. queen on a bicycle in Kensington Palace where it said no cycling. <laughs> I was the queen for the day. Isn't it amazing what we'll do for money? I mean, honestly. So in February 2012, they thought it would be interesting to send me out as an old person. I just honestly think they're sort of, you've got someone in the office with a sense of humour, haven't you? So they spent hours... Nobody said on Twitter that they didn't need ours. They spent hours turning me into an old person. Anyone watching would see I'm struggling, yet no one rushes to my aid. I'm in Soul Trader, a shoe shop in Kensington, West London, attempting to place my stockinged feet in a pair of trainers. I try lining up the trainer by poking it with my walking frame. They gave me a walking frame. It was on expenses. But they're quite an art, aren't they, a walking frame? You've got to be quite coordinated. I lift my leg, fail, then lift again. I've managed to slip off my wide fit comfort plus pumps, but now need help. Even looking around is hard as my neck is bent over, so I have to twist my whole body. I glimpse a sales assistant a few feet away. An older male customer comes to my rescue. I think the lady needs help, he says. The lumpen young assistant's feet hove into view. Hello, dear, I say. I thought trainers might make me more mobile. (laughs) 
You don't need trainers, you need physio, he says, not <gasps> smiling. What a whippersnapper. What a sod. If I could just get them on, I need something that will make me feel safe on the ice. Reluctantly, he bends down. He opens the shoe, waiting for me to lift my foot. I fail. He gingerly moves the shoe towards my foot, avoiding any contact. He is recoiling. Perhaps he thinks I smell. He does up the laces roughly, and the tongue is bent and uncomfy, but I don't say anything. I ask how much they are, and when he tells me, I exclaim, £36! In the voice of Mrs Richards in 40 Towers, (laughs) he rolls his eyes. He doesn't help me get the trainers off or offer an arm to get me to my feet. I'm clearly an untouchable. Today, I'm no longer my 53-year-old self. With the help of a makeup artist, hairdresser and the classics range at Marks and Spencer. Oh, did that hurt? Did that hurt? I have been fast-forwarded 30 years. Latex has given me wrinkles so that my skin now has the consistency of crepe paper. Just reminds me of Christmas crepe paper. We are going to post a picture of that as well, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to post a picture of me. I'm never going to look at it. Tram lines have been drawn with purple pencil from nose to mouth, which has been blotted out with foundation. I now have no lips, just a gaping maw. Faye, the makeup artist, has put dry shampoo in my hair to make it silver, and my eyes recede into their sockets courtesy of purple eyeshadow. My ears and nose, Faye told me cheerfully, will apparently continue to grow as I age. What's that about? What do you mean grow? How can your nose grow? Taking a nut on a life of their own. Something to look forward to. See, that's happened to my stomach and my backside. For now, they've been coarsened with latex. No matter how much cosmetic surgery I have, I will become old. It's inevitable. The results? I have the face of my 92-year-old mum. But while she always had a twinkle in her eyes before she descended into dementia, I just looked miserable, angry. As part of my transformation, I've been shown how to walk like an old woman by Neem, a student of Guildhall School of Music and Drama. She tells me I must move as though I'm protecting myself and I have to concentrate where I place my feet. At 83, I will have less muscle strength so I'll have to shift to move my weight. And oh, I'll be smaller too. Another blow after a lifetime of wearing Louboutins. All I can think is, yes, the physical disintegration is depressing. But the worst thing is, I know that when I reach old age, I will also be alone, worse off than my mum. At least, having had seven children, she's leaving something behind. The reason for this experiment? To show me the error of my profligate ways. To demonstrate that, no matter how much cosmetic surgery and Botox I have, I will become old unless I die. It's inevitable. People have called me vain, what with my addiction to Botox and fillers. But my quest for youth is actually the opposite of vanity. It's because I've not achieved enough. While a woman might feel comfortable to show her wrinkles and grey hair because she has teenage children and people who love her, I've never reached the stage where I can say, well done Liz, now you can relax and grow old gracefully. Add to that the fact I will probably have arthritis. My mum and all three of my sisters had it. I will also be penniless. There's a thing you see today. It's starting to be a little bit depressing, really. As I have no pension or savings and spend my income faster than it comes in. How will my facelift fare when I get older? 
Will the veneers on my teeth look too shockingly bright in a puckered mouth? I'm going to turn into Rylan. That's not a bad thing. I love we Rylan. We love him. We love him. Will my tattooed eyebrows look like strange purple arcs? You didn't know you were going to be transplanted then, I am did trans- you? I'm transplanted now. You are. You are. It's all changed. Will the laser eye surgery I had hold good? Will a lifetime of dieting be etched in my bones, making them as desiccated as straw? Will I even be able to look at my newly ancient face when you consider that I've never felt positive about my looks? I cast my mind back to the day I turned 25 and my dad exclaimed, a quarter of a century, you're positively ancient. It's funny how when people say negative things to you, they stick in your mind. My dad said, oh, 25, quarter of a century. It's a proven thing, actually, that if people, if, if you talk negatively to yourself or someone says something, that is a stronger emotion than if you say something positive. Well, you don't believe it, do you, you if know, it's positive? No, you hold on to negative far more than positive. So even at 25, I felt past my best. My entire life has been about holding back the years. Anorexic from 11, I tried to delay puberty. I was scared of boys. There's a photo of me, age 14, on the beach at Sidmouth, denim from head to toe, molten brown parasol protecting my hair, a scarf over my face with a tiny breathing hole cut in. When I got the job as editor of Marie Claire, age 40, I shaved five years off my age to anyone who asked. I once told my husband my real age on the eve of our wedding after failing to find someone to forge a new birth certificate. I tried you to didn't. find someone to forge oh, a birth Because when you do the bands, you have to give them a birth certificate. No one told me that. Was this before Wikipedia? No one told me that. You'd be buggered now, wouldn't you? Because they just Google the you. Yeah. yeah, so you can't get away with it now. Strange though it is, I feel more respected as an 80-year-old than I do when I'm 53. So what does it actually feel like to be old? Back to the experiment. After Soul Trader, I creep into Zara, fearing the frayed floor will trip me up. I'm drawn to the sequins. Even in my 80s, I won't succumb to Per Una at Marks and Spencer. After a long wait, a young sales assistant comes over. I need to go to a party. Would this suit me, I ask? The garment is sheer. I don't see why not, she says, but this spangled card you might be better. Shall I take them to the changing room for you? She doesn't offer me a seat or shepherd me to the fitting rooms. In Space NK, an upmarket apothecary where I've spent a fortune over the years, I am cheered. I stand outside, unable to open the heavy doors. I have my stick in one hand, my bag in the other. A, a young woman leaps to open it. Can I help you, she says. I'd like a night cream, please. What skin type do you have? Isn't that sweet? I look 83 Aww. and she says, what skin type do you have? Aww. See, people can be nice. I'm a husk, dear, I say. <laughs> do you have anything under 20 pounds? <laughs> to her credit, she returns with the cream costing 21 pounds. What do you use to remove makeup, she asks. It wears off, I reply, which is what my mum always says. And I use imperial leather and ponds. I love ponds. We have some nice soap, she says. I wish she'd offer me a chair and some samples and some champagne. I'm like the nan, aren't I? What's yeah, her name? You're going to go Captain at 83. Tate. You're going to just be quaffing champagne at the same time. My biggest surprise comes at a bus stop. 
people gesture for me to get on first. When I tell the driver I don't have a pass or any money, he waves me on board. Hold tight, he says. But my triumph as an 83-year-old comes in the car phone warehouse. I get my Blackberry and iPhone out because I'm a, I'm a rocking grand. I'm a rocking grand with a Blackberry and an iPhone. Go for it, go for it. Much to the amusement of the two young Asian shop assistants. I can never hear anyone I say, which is true. Let me fix that one, says, and he fiddles with both. He calls my iPhone. You have to press answer, he laughs. <laughs> That's so much better. Thank you, I say, and they help me to the door. Back from my day out and the latex starts to dissolve. The youngish me emerges once more. I'm so relieved. It's as though, like Scrooge, I've been given a second chance. I haven't been treated too badly today, but I suppose it's one thing being old in the upmarket borough of Kensington. What's it like to be old in a bleak housing estate or in a care home? Could I walk among gangs of children? The next night... Back home in Somerset, mindful I will likely grow old here. Well, I didn't do that, did I? I don the Mark's classic clothes and walk three miles to the shops at dusk. I lean on my stick. There's no path. I'm terrified. It's snowing. No one stops to offer me a lift. How would I carry shopping home? I sob for the first time. How do these old women bear it? How do they cope with the red tape, the rudeness, the cost, parking apps? If a child were out alone, cold and frightened, questions would be asked in Parliament. But when this happens to an old person, we think it's normal, their lot, their fault. It's then I realise my mum is the bravest woman I know, more beautiful than I will ever be. She's lived with constant pain, but I never once heard her complain or leak self-pity. One particularly painful memory springs to mind. When she was staying with me in London, I was walking her to the loo and she started to sink to the ground. I tried to hold her up. She wasn't small. Screaming for my husband, anyone, for help, I paged him. Oh, he was very good, though, wasn't he, with your mum? Yeah, he was. I think it was just displacement activity. Unable to hold her up any longer, I let her slide to the floor, undignified. Knickers showing. She was crying. I was crying. And all she said was, I'm so sorry, dear. I'm a silly. Just leave me. Oh, but you got her up in the end. Yeah, but then I complained that her wheelchair made marks on my wooden floor. Yeah. And I had to get an expert in to sand them. Oh, God. Poor Mummy Jones. Every week, lots of you get in touch, telling me what you think about my life and my decisions. So I think it's only fair that you get to have your say here on the podcast too. If you'd like to get in touch, then go to lizjonesgoddess.com or tweet me at lizjonesgoddess. One letter. One letter. We have Phil on Twitter. and Who? Phil. So, lady, she says, Liz mentioned her mum was a ballerina and I would love to know more. Did she perform publicly? Well, she didn't. I don't think she performed publicly, though I've got a photo of her and a tutu doing an arabesque in my bedroom because... So she was very professional in that photo, doesn't she? Yeah, she then met my dad at a bus stop 
in the middle of the Second World War, 1940, he asked her on a date and they went to see The Wizard of Oz and then they got married and then she didn't see him for three years. It was very forward, wasn't it? Meeting at a bus stop and straight But he could have been killed by Nazis. Well, no, because he was fighting the Nazis. Yeah, but he could have been killed. They got married and she didn't see him for three years. Do you know, that's a much better way of doing it, isn't it? It's a much better way yeah. of doing it. Rather than all this... Dating apps and that. Pick and in up my wardrobe, stop. I've got all these postcards because he was a real dandy, my dad. I've got all these postcards my dad sent to my mum after they got married and he was in Italy posing in a uniform in a fountain in Rome oh. and posing in a uniform in a fountain in Florence. Oh, oh. See, they knew how to do it, didn't they? They knew how to do it. We're just rubbish. <laughs> Well, that's it from us this week. If you enjoyed listening to Liz Jones's Diary, the podcast, why not visit melplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to all our podcast videos, opinion pieces and more. I'll be back next Sunday. But for now, I'm Liz Jones. And I'm Nick. Goodbye. Goodbye.